You're listening to Culture and Christianity, a podcast of In-Town Community Church. You will find in the description for this episode links to handouts and resources that are mentioned during this episode. Thanks for listening. Well, thanks for being here. So we're uh, week three out of four, uh, talking about Christian nationalism, uh, what your pastor wants you to know, and um, have some, uh, if you'll notice on your handout, front and back, and uh, on the back you'll see a, a section in the middle of the page, Michael Horton video, and some questions there. We'll, we'll use that as kind of a discussion exercise later in our time this morning. So uh, those of you who are like, I can't wait to get to the part where we interact and uh, talk together and, and have a little small group conversation and some back and forth, it's coming. We'll get there. Others of you are like, I can't wait to fill in the blanks on my handout. <laughs> we'll get there too. And uh, if you need a pen, uh, they're, they're in the back. Let me take a moment and pray. Holy Spirit, be with us and uh, change us. Uh, No matter what kind of question or concern or anxiety we are here with this morning, um, you can meet us. And so we pray that you would do just that. Uh, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And uh, teach us how to rest in gospel peace. And uh, to help other people experience that. We pray in his name. Amen. Okay, three goals uh, you'll see at the top of your handout. Uh, three goals that we're pursuing over, the, over these four weeks. Your pastor wants you to know how to experience gospel peace. And your pastor wants you to know how to grow in gospel wisdom. And your pastor wants you to know how to build gospel bridges. Next week we will focus more on that building gospel bridges component. There will be some of that uh, Included this morning, but we'll focus more there on our fourth week next Sunday. Um, all of these things are, uh, are in relation to the topic of Christian nationalism. Uh, so you'll see a definition at the top of your handout. Uh, this is um, not a full quote of the, the fullest definition we've been using. It's kind of my paraphrase of it. Uh, what is Christian nationalism? The way we're defining that term. Uh, and you'll find that uh, people, people will talk in different ways about this term and what it means. Some people will say it means nothing. It's just a slur. It, it's a word you use to label people you don't like. And so uh, convinced that that's the case, th- those folks will tend to not even want to give you a definition of the word because uh, they're, they're not convinced that that makes much difference. Uh, I think it helps to define the term, and this is the definition we're operating with. Christian nationalism identifies a nation or a subgroup within that nation very closely with God's purposes and God's people. So closely, in fact, that the, uh, um, that the purposes of God in the world and the purposes of God for that nation overlap uh, so much that, that it begins to be uh, difficult to tell the difference between the two. And so uh, the nation and the goals of the nation become just as important as God's goals in the world. Uh, the loyalty you should give to God uh, now can be demanded by the nation. Serving the nation 
is serving God. The nation's history is God's history. The nation's heroes are God's heroes. And, and this kind of collapsing of the two uh, that can lead to a, a, an unquestioning loyalty being asked for on the part of the nation. And uh, as a result, there's, there's a tendency to seek to eliminate or at least uh, to, to overshadow uh, any competing visions for the nation. Like if the nation is God's nation, then we should want God's vision. And if, God's, if the nation's vision is God's vision, then you shouldn't have any other vision. And, and so it's that collapsing of nation into um, uh, sort of God's purposes and God's people that leads to all these results. That's the definition we're working with. Um, <clears throat> in that context, how do we build gospel bridges? So this is something we talked about last week. Uh, your pastor wants you to know people who don't believe what you do. Um, they're, it's hard to be soft and light as Jesus says we are called to be. If, uh, if everybody around us has all the salt they need and everybody around us has all the light they need, then what good are we? <laughs> if we're just spending time around people who believe exactly as we do, we're falling short of our calling. We need to know people who don't believe what we do. That might be knowing some Christian people who are more favorable toward Christian nationalism than we are. It might mean uh, knowing people who, who think Christian nationalism is actually Christian. They understand Christianity very little. And so when they hear the word Christian nationalism, they assume that every Christian is a Christian nationalist. They haven't sat with other folks in a room like this hearing somebody say Christian nationalism, not Christian. <laughs> um, it's a form of idolatry. And uh, we need to know people who don't believe what we do. And so this is what we're asking God for. Will you ask God for this with me? Sometime in the next three months, Lord, can I have an awkward conversation about politics with somebody? That prayer is answered like <laughs> right now, you know. Um, and, and can that conversation lead toward a deeper conversation about Jesus. Now, let me correct a misunderstanding here. If we pray this way, we're not praying necessarily for, hey, Lord, help me to have one conversation with a person that within you know, three minutes we, we move from uh, the awkward politics phase to the here's Jesus phase. No, moving, toward, moving from one topic to another like this might take months, depending on the relationship, depending on the person. It might take moments, depending on the relationship and the person. There's no way to know how God's going to answer this prayer. But can we pray this together? That sometime over the next three months, God would open a door that would let us lean into a conversation that might begin on the topic of politics and then lead to some deeper uh, dives into what's going on in people's hearts. Um, hey, the more we talk about this, the more energy I'm hearing from you. Tell me about that. Why is this so meaningful to you? Why, why does this concern you so much? I want to know you a little bit better. Do you mind unpacking that for me a little bit? 
Um, there are ways to... People who are animated about politics are animated about something way deeper than politics. Always. Right? Always. And so uh, let's, let's pray and let's ask God to, to go with us on that uh, awkward journey. Jesus had all kinds of awkward conversations with people, right? Um, look, I just, I'm just at the well because I want some water. Well, I can give you some water that means you never have to come here again. What are you talking about? <laughs> you really need to be born again, Jesus would say. Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about? Somebody can't be born twice. Why are you having this kind of nonsense conversation with me? So awkward conversations are just part of belonging to Jesus. Let's explore gospel peace uh, for a moment. Your pastor wants you to know people who don't believe what you do. Let's build gospel bridges. Your pastor wants you to know what Jesus says. Because there's a lot here in terms of gospel peace. So today we'll look at a passage from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Peter is writing to people who are experiencing a kind of... I'm not even going to use the word persecution. It might be appropriate to do that. I'm going to call it peer pressure. Because at the time that Peter writes, uh, the people he's writing to aren't experiencing the you know, Roman soldier knocking on the door in the middle of the night to cut your head off kind of persecution. They're experiencing something less formal, less official. Um, this kind of not-so-quiet pushing you out of relevance to our society because you don't believe in our gods. You're atheists. As Christians, you only believe in one god. True theists believe in many gods. You're against the existence of the gods and the goddesses. And so you, you, you can't really play a part in our society. And Peter was writing, how, how do we live in, in a society when uh, we're you know, treated as, as kind of irrelevant <clears throat> to the conversation? He starts here in uh, verse 9 of chapter 3. Be the kind of people who don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Oh yeah, well you're irrelevant. Oh yeah, where your gods suck. Oh yeah? No, that's not us. Don't repay evil with evil. Don't repay insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. This is what you're called to. Now, if we were already good at this, Peter wouldn't have to tell us to do it. Right? If we were already the kind of people who knew not to repay evil with evil... (laughs) then he wouldn't have to say it, and he certainly wouldn't have to say it three times, three different ways. Right? This is, a, this is hard to live out. But there's um, something here that uh, will enable us to do what is hard. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer Now, I don't know if anyone has a Bible open, uh, whether that's a Bible app on a phone or a print Bible. I'm reading from the NIV here. If you're looking at a different translation, what does it say instead of answer? Be prepared to make a defense. 
be prepared to make a defense. Now, tell me about the difference between an answer and a defense. Defense assumes attack. Defense, you defend yourself when you've been attacked. You answer when you have been asked a question. Right? The, the, the Greek word here assumes uh, you've been insulted, you've been criticized, you have been maybe attacked, right? Sort of a verbal attack. So it's a little bit stronger word than answer. Uh, so this is not kind of a neutral, someone asked you a question and, and, and give an answer to it. This is a, someone asked a question with the tone of voice that you know very well is sarcastic and insulting, and now how do you respond? With another insult, with more sarcasm, with a, with a counterattack. Um, always be prepared to give a, a defense, a, a, a response to the attack. Notice what Peter is assuming. That people are going to ask Christians to give a reason for the so-called hope that they have. Now remember, this is an attack, so it's going to feel like an insult. You tell me you have this so-called hope in a crucified Messiah? Yeah, good luck with that. Um, Be ready to give an answer to someone who misunderstands you and misrepresents you. Peter assumes that Christians will be misunderstood and misrepresented. In fact, verse 17 implies it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. That one of the ways, if you were a Christian in, in Peter's day, one of the ways you'd be misunderstood is people thought, thought of you as an evildoer. You do evil. You bring the curses of the gods down on our society by, by your atheism. Your refusal to believe in the gods and the goddesses. You are workers of evil. Uh, We've heard you practice incest, that brothers and sisters marry one another. That was one of the common misunderstandings in the first century of Christianity. We hear that you're cannibals, you eat flesh, you drink blood. Another common misunderstanding. When you are misunderstood and misrepresented, you are experiencing kind of normal Christian life in the world. That's part of the deal. You embrace love and treasure and cherish a crucified Messiah. You, you are signing up to be misunderstood and misrepresented. Is it the case that many Christians will be assumed to be Christian nationalists in our culture? Yes. Is it the case that sort of what for centuries has been sort of normal, healthy Christian engagement in public life will be understood by some people to be a form of Christian nationalism? Yeah. Be misunderstood. Be misrepresented. Um, that's it's going to happen. Gospel peace empowers a response to that so that when we are misunderstood and misrepresented, we respond in a way that's characterized by what two things? Gentleness and respect. Now, just out of curiosity, the different translation use different words there. I didn't do my homework for today. 
Same, same two words, gentleness and respect. Reverence. Reverence instead of respect. Yeah, the word, for, the word translated respect here is actually the Greek word fear. So that you should show reverence for the person who just insulted you. Treat that person with such dignity and respect that they feel almost like you, you're putting them on a bit of a pedestal. Gentleness and, and, and that level of respect. Um, the word gentleness here, it's, it's, it implies a context where anger would, would seem like an appropriate response. So when it would seem appropriate to answer insult with insult, when it would seem appropriate to answer harshness with harshness, anger with anger, that there's something about the good news of, of the love of Jesus that enables us, it, it gives us the power to respond differently in that moment. Gentleness and respect. Gospel peace empowers a response that, that is focused on Hope. Always be prepared to respond to that attack, that accusation, that challenge that you're an evildoer, uh, that misunderstanding, that misrepresentation, that, that twisting of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Respond to all of that uh, in a way that gives a reason for the hope that you have. Take the answer back to hope. Now, in the New Testament, this word hope, when it's referred to as the hope that we have, always refers to resurrection life. Take every conversation back to the resurrection of Jesus, Peter is saying. When you are insulted, bend the conversation back around to Jesus. When you are misunderstood, misrepresented, when when all you're getting is rage and anger, bend the conversation back around to the crucified and resurrected Jesus. The goal of the conversation is no longer to clarify politics. The goal of the conversation is not to clarify the distinction between patriotism and nationalism. The goal of the conversation no longer to win a debate. The goal of the conversation is before this is over, I want you to know that Christians, for, for Christians, Jesus is everything. That Christians are people who have said yes to Jesus. However you need to say it, the conversation gets bent back around to the main event, the main thing. Christian nationalism says the main thing is the nation or the main thing is Jesus and it doesn't matter which of those because they're kind of substitute. You can substitute one for the other. And Christianity says we can't substitute anyone or anything for Jesus ever. I don't know what you've heard about us. 
I don't know if you've heard that said in hateful ways. I don't know if you've heard that said in ways that make no sense to you. But this is the heartbeat of who we are. Um, The focus comes back around to hope, which is reference to the resurrection of Jesus. What are the realities that give us that kind of peace that would enable us to respond gently when we, are, when we want to just be angry, <laughs> to respond with respect or reverence uh, when uh, we, we feel like we're justified in looking down on someone? Um, what are the resources that, that are the foundation for that kind of peace? Hint, I put them in white on this slide, right? <laughs> Who's the Lord? Christ is the Lord. If we're not, if if we think the Lord is chosen in the next election, if we think the Lord is the flag or the language someone speaks. If we think the Lord is the nation, it's hard to have peace because nations come and go and flags are raised and lowered and elections are won and lost. But who's going to change the fact that Christ is Lord? Nobody. He got one vote. The only vote he needed. The father voted and said, I love my son. I love what he did on the cross to redeem the world. I'm going to give him the gift of resurrection life. And I'm going to give it to him so much that he can share it with anybody he wants and not have any less than when he started. That's the only vote that counts. It's already been cast. Nothing can change it. Jesus is the Lord. We can have peace because we're not trying to figure out who sits on the throne of the universe. Where has he brought us? Where did he bring us? He brought us to God. Right? That might mean something if you're in Peter's day being accused of atheism. You don't know the gods. You don't even believe in the gods. You're an atheist. Peter's saying, no, Jesus brought you to God. You have a relationship with the one God who is real and who is. And no amount of critique or misunderstanding, whether well-intentioned or not, no amount of misrepresentation, no amount of insult is going to take you away from God. If you don't know what to say in that awkward conversation about politics that you're praying for. And your mind goes blank. And you forget to turn everything back around to Jesus. That won't take you away from God. Right? There's peace that comes from knowing Christ. Peace from knowing that nothing can change who he is. He is the Lord. Nothing can change what he has done. 
he has suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Um, So part of what I believe our calling is right now, um, whether we're talking about Christian nationalism specifically or just sort of political conversation in our nation more generally, there's just a whole lot of anxiety in the system. There's a whole lot of fear and and, um, heightened tension. And so one of our callings as believers in Jesus is to just be like the pig pen of America. You remember Peanuts? When pig pen walks in the room and and every time he shows up in a panel of the comic strip, he's surrounded by this cloud of dirt. This fuzzy cloud of somebody give that kid a bath, right? And it just goes with him everywhere. Well, Christians ought to be like this cloud of peace. This cloud of anti-tension, anti-hostility, this cloud of bring the temperature down a bit, this cloud of be the person in the room who's not panicking. Because Jesus is the Lord, nothing can change that. He has brought us to God, nothing will change that. The world is full of a lot of hard things. Following a crucified Messiah, we already know that. Nothing is harder than crucifixion. But the story doesn't end with crucifixion. It ends with resurrection. So we can bring this sort of pig pen dust cloud of peace with us. And maybe that would help some people feel a little more free to uh, have that awkward conversation with us. So it turns out the gospel peace and building gospel bridges are really... Two sides of the same coin. Okay, some gospel wisdom for us. Know about some troubling trends. We started this week work last week. I want to carry the ball a little bit further down the field this week. Uh, and so uh, there are more than two unhealthy or troubling trends that I'm seeing as I do more reading. Um, I don't think we'll have time to get to all of them today. So uh, maybe we'll come back to a third next week. But we uh, touched on this last week. One troubling trend I'm seeing as I read and study more is a trend to make some unhealthy assumptions. One assumption is that everything that is called Christian really is Christian. So Christian nationalism must be something that all Christians agree on and believe. No, just because you put that label on it doesn't mean it actually is Christian. Um, And so uh, there is a tendency to make that sort of assumption. I've heard enough people who say they're Christians say things that are utterly untrue about Christianity that I have learned to, uh, to take... Like when somebody tells me, oh, Buddhists believe this, I take it with a grain of salt. Oh, Muslims do that? Oh, oh, okay. Let's talk a little more. Because I've heard enough people say, 
get it wrong about Christianity, even from the inside, legitimate Christians, like, okay, just a little grain of salt. So not everything's called Christian really is Christian. Um, another unhealthy assumption would be everything that is called Christian nationalism really is Christian nationalism. It's not true. Um, I, I see some people using that label to label things that uh, don't strike me as nationalistic at all. So I think Christian nationalism really exists. I think it's a thing. I think it's a thing worth talking about. But I don't think that we can just assume everything that has that label applied to it actually is that thing. Or, you know, to go back to my upbringing in small town South Carolina, the way we would say it is just because it's an oven don't mean it's a biscuit. (laughs) Right? So... (laughs) You, you can put this inside your Christian nationalism oven, but that don't mean it's actually Christian nationalism. So, uh, and that leads to this uh, second trend that I, I see is troubling of overgeneralization. Um, casting too wide a net would be a good metaphor here. So, Uh, One way I see this happening is uh, people defining Christian nationalism so broadly that it it begins to include a kind of healthy cultural and political engagement on the part of Christians. Now, the reason for this is that Western culture has embraced a, a kind of a philosophical secularism that divides the universe into... It's like your house. You don't live in the attic. Right? You don't live in the attic. You live down here on on the main floor. This is where life happens. In the attic, you keep some sentimental stuff that's not really worth anything for day-to-day life. If it was worth something for day-to-day life, you'd keep it down here where day-to-day life happens. You don't keep your best pots and pans in the attic. You don't keep Scottish breakfast tea in the attic because you need to drink it at breakfast every day. That's part of day-to-day life. That lives down here. I don't want to be going up in the attic to get useful stuff. I go up in the attic every once in a while to take a look at great-grandma's wedding veil. I, take, I, I go up there to look at... Have you ever heard of a typewriter? <laughs> do, you know, do you know what that device used to be used for? There's one up in the attic. Let's go look at it. Nobody will ever use it again, but it's fun to go there and remember how life used to be. Philosophically, we've divided the world up that way, and we've said religion lives up there. Religion is in the attic. We go up there to see how life used to be. Oh, don't you remember how quaint it was when people thought God was real? But down here, we know he's not real. We don't keep him down here. Science is down here. Facts are down here. History is down here. Legend, myth, fable, they're up there. They're not real. We don't need them for every day. We're rational creatures. We we use our minds. We're about facts, data. We live down here. 
politics is down here on the main floor. This is where real life happens. Politics. Please keep your Christianity out of politics because it belongs in the attic and politics down here on the main floor. If, if that's the way you lean in, then any Christian who says, I want my, my, as I listen to Jesus and what he says is true and what he says would be best for all of my neighbors, that begins to shape how I think about upcoming elections. That begins to shape how I think about things like freedom of speech. That begins to shape how I think about things like freedom of religion. That begins to shape how I think about being a good citizen and a good neighbor. And some people will hear that and misunderstand and misrepresent. And they will say, no, if you want to bring anything about any religion into politics, that is nationalism and that is wrong. Someone who lives with that real hard two-story universe and everything about faith is up in the attic and it doesn't touch down. It's okay for you to go into the attic on Sunday mornings. Here we are in the top floor of our church and it looks kind of like that, right? All right, next week we're meeting down there. No. It's okay for you to go to the attic once an, you know, for an hour a week, but don't bring it down into all of life. So, it, it, is, it is understandable. I can fully understand and even respect why someone who lives in that kind of universe, if that is their mental map, and they think I'm a Christian nationalist because I want to let my Christianity inform my political thinking and involvement, I can respect them for being consistent in their worldview. I think their worldview doesn't fit the actual world we live in, but at least I can respect them for being consistent. And I can understand why they misunderstand me. Right? So, yeah, there is a tendency in the literature I'm reading to define Christian nationalism so broadly that it begins to include historic biblical understandings of how to be engaged in as salt and light in the culture where we live, how to be engaged in politics, especially in a democratic society where everybody is invited to be engaged in it. So there is that tendency. It's an overgeneralization. It's not, I, I don't think it's, uh, it's not warranted even if it is consistent with this prevailing kind of two-story view of the world. Uh, and then there's guilt by association. Because people who definitely are and say themselves to be Christian nationalists believe ABC, and you say you believe ABC, then you must also be a Christian nationalist. And all the lawyers in the room like throw their brows and they're like, man, that was first semester. We learned that. You can't argue like that if you expect to win. <laughs> and yet it happens, right? Sort of this guilt by association. Uh, and, and I definitely see this happening. Um, an example would be from this book, Taking America Back for God, uh, which I, I, it'd be hard to say this definitively, but... Um, 
I find this source being cited by a really wide range of other people. A lot of people are reading this book as kind of the the best researched um, and data-driven understanding of Christian nationalism in the United States. It is written by people who are critical of Christian nationalism. When you read the title, you might not know that, right? The title might sound like they're on a mission. Well, they are on a mission, which is to help people understand Christian nationalism and reject it. Um, Popular book, uh, some good scholarship in there, some helpful things. And yet, it's it's a book that that does these two things. It, it defines Christian nationalism very broadly in such a way that um, it, it's, it's too wide a net, I think. And uh, guilt by association. I think it's on page 11 of the book that there's a, a table saying, here are the top 10 predictors that uh, it... If, if you identify with one of these ten things, I'm just listing five of the ten here, then you are much more likely to be favorable toward Christian nationalism. And so this is where the guilt by association tends to come in, even after you read all the scholarly caveats. And, and you know, we're not saying that these one is cause and the other is effect. There's still, I think, broadly going to be this kind of guilt by association uh, in our culture. Once the word gets out that, hey, there's a great book that says, now this is not exactly what the book says, but this is how we tend to absorb things into the pop culture, right? There's this great book that says that if you take the Bible seriously, you're probably a Christian nationalist. That's not what the book says. Exactly. But also you could be forgiven for leaving this book with that conclusion. Um, So, notice how three of their top five have to do with taking the Bible seriously. It's just three ways of saying that. If you identify it as Bible-believing, you're more likely to take Christian nationalism as a positive thing. If you identify the Bible as the literal word of God... If you identify the Bible as perfectly true, even though it shouldn't be literally interpreted. If you have a high view of the Bible, if you take the Bible seriously. A lot of Christian nationalists say they do, so you must be one of them. That is not good logic. It is not true. I know plenty of people who take the Bible seriously and would agree with one or maybe all three of those statements about the Bible even if a couple of them seem contradictory. (laughs) Catch me at the right moment. I'll agree with... That's not a mark of being a Christian nationalist. In fact, I would say that many people who agree to statements like that don't fully understand what they mean. That is to say, more and more people who are sympathetic with Christian nationalism identify themselves as Bible-believing Christians, but also say, I never go to church. So I'm not sure that saying you take the Bible seriously on a survey is the same as actually taking the Bible seriously. 
So there's a lot of careful thinking and unpacking we have to do. But we need to be ready for a guilt by association type of uh, environment where, hey, you are religiously affiliated, aren't you? Then you're probably a Christian nationalist. No. I mean, yes, I am religiously affiliated, but no, I'm not a Christian nationalist. Hey, you take the Bible seriously. I bet you think it's the literal word of God. Well, tell me what you mean by literal. That'd be a fun conversation. I do believe it's the word of God. And for you, I would probably say, yes, literal word of God. Because if I don't, you'll misunderstand me. (laughs) But I'm not a Christian nationalist. Guilt by association is something that we've got to be kind of ready for. Okay, here we go. Video time. You see some questions uh, there. So uh, take some notes as we watch a clip from this video. And then I'll ask you to uh, discuss these things with some people seated, seated around you. Describe the tone, uh, the emotion reflected by this speaker. His name is Michael Horton. He's a pastor and teacher um, who uh, lives in California, has taught at Westminster Seminary in California for many years, um, and uh, listen to his tone. How would you describe it? He's going to list several things that are not wrong. It's not wrong too. It's not wrong too. It's not wrong too. What are those things? What's he telling us? Hey, this is not wrong. And then go a little deeper with that. Why might he feel like he needs to give us a list of those things that aren't wrong? And after he lists all those things, he's still going to tell us something he's worried about, concerned about. I don't think you'll use that language but you'll hear that there's something he still really wants us to get. What's that thing? Um, So, here we go. Michael Horton, part of another video. You may or may not like the title, Why America is Not a Christian Nation. Um, Students would always ask me, what's the best Bible translation? I taught them the the proper answer is, for what purpose? (laughs) When someone asks, what's the best Bible translation? The right answer is, for what purpose? If the purpose is X, the best translation is this one. If the purpose is different, Y, the best translation is that one. Right? For what purpose? So, is America a Christian nation? What do you mean by that? I can't answer that question until you tell me what you mean by it. That's, that's the right answer. When someone asks you the question, is America a Christian nation? The right answer is, what do you mean by that? Because this sounds like God is answering my prayer about having an awkward conversation (laughs) that will lead us to something deep that will lead back to the hope we have in Jesus. All right, here we go. There's nothing wrong with Christians involving themselves in politics and political advocacy in whatever nation they call home. There's nothing wrong with Christians as citizens participating in non-religious and non-violent protests for public policies. And there's nothing wrong with Christians expressing healthy forms of patriotism, love for nation, and that nation's ideals. But none of this should be confused with the Christian's identity in the transnational family of God. And no national political agenda or ideal can take priority over God's global mandate and mission for his people. All right, that was a lot, and it's coming out fast, so we're going to do it again. 
Ready? Here we go. There's nothing wrong with Christians involving themselves in politics and political advocacy in whatever nation they call home. There's nothing wrong with Christians as citizens participating in non-religious and non-violent protests for public policies. And there's nothing wrong with Christians expressing healthy forms of patriotism, love for nation, and that nation's ideals. But none of this should be confused with the Christian's identity in the transnational family of God. And no national political agenda or ideal can take priority over God's global mandate and mission for his people. All right. There we go. Tell you what, let's do this all together. Talk to me about tone, emotion. Let's see. What what did you hear? Emphatic. Passionate. Urgent. Urgency. But not angry. Doesn't seem angry? I, I think you could be emphatic about being angry. <clears throat> okay. So you... We're hearing emphasis, urgency, but not a rage. She's not boiling over. Yeah. Campaigning. 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 Unpack that a little bit. (laughs) Christy doesn't want to unpack it. Okay, so I'm going to unpack it a little bit. Campaigning is like he wants us to believe something, embrace something, move towards something. He's, He's trying to... Win people over to his point of view. Persuasive. Persuasive? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's see if we can reconstruct a list now of the things that aren't wrong. I know it, they came by, came by really fast. It's not wrong to... Be involved in politics. Be involved in politics if you're a Christian. Protest peacefully. It's not wrong to protest if you're a Christian. He says peacefully, right? Um, but... Non-religious protest. Not wrong for a Christian to take part in a protest that has nothing to do with the church. It's not organized by other Christians. You can get out there and mix it up with people who don't believe what you do in in uh, protesting government actions, decisions, policies, etc. Yeah. What, what else is on the list? Not wrong to express healthy patriotism. Not wrong to express. Patriotism in healthy ways. Jim is a great note taker, listener. What do we what do we miss? Just connected love for country. Okay, so not wrong to have a sort of appropriate love for country. All right. As I first watched this video, I'm, I'm listening and, and that, like this section jumps out and and like it's it's not wrong and you hear that passion, the urgency, um, <clears throat> and obviously he's written all this down prepared him. Chosen all his words very carefully. Um, why, why might he feel like he needs to go through, through that list of things that aren't wrong? He's trying to get people to do something. Okay, maybe he wants more people to be involved in protest or to be engaged in politics or to don't let your Christianity kind of make you live in the attic. So people have, been, have confused what he's talking about with Christian nationalism. Okay, so in this whole video, as a whole, he's he is addressing the question: Is America a Christian nation? And the the perspective he's taking is: 
that the only nation that was ever aligned with God's people was the Old Testament nation of Israel. And that now, uh, after the coming of Christ, there is no single nation that is so aligned with God and His purposes that it could be called the Christian nation or even a Christian nation. Now, he's understanding that phrase in a particular way, and he's trying to make the case that, hey, your, your, your fundamental identity as a Christian is not based on the nation you live in. It's based on the people you're part of, which is, you heard him say it, this sort of transnational church. Yeah. So as a as as a pastor uh, and one-time seminary professor, when I hear him talk, I can maybe reconstruct how this video came to exist. It's a little bit like um probably at one point somebody asked him, "Hey, what do you think about this thing is uh, Christian nationalism or or is America a Christian nation?" or answer that question and he tries out an answer and then people are like, "But what about? But what about? But what about?" And so he's like, "Okay, now I got to I got to put my list in here of I'm not saying it's wrong for Christians to be political animals. I'm not th- saying it's wrong for Christians to be engaged in politics. I'm I'm not saying that if you're a Christian, you can never question any action of your government. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you can't be patriotic in a healthy, biblical, biblically understood way. I'm not saying any of that. But what is he concerned about? I think he's concerned about two things. One is a loss of a sense of mission dilution of this global mandate for mission that is potentially going to be replaced by a more focused and even isolationist at the extreme sense of what our mission's about. Mm. And the second is connected to it, and the phrase he used was a transnational family. And that is a sense that our identity and belonging as Christians is much broader it's not less than patriotism, but it's, but it's necessarily broad. It's a, it's a great commission sense of identity that has us um, connected to, reaching out to, and, and having a sense of belonging to a bigger family, this transnational family, which is an interesting word to use. Um, so can I think, you repeat that if we can't hear in the back? Sorry. Um, I, so one, loss of mission and dilution. Two, loss of a sense of connection to a bigger, what he calls a transnational family. Um, both of which could knock us out of um, a mobilized mission and a sense of connection to people who aren't just in our country, in our nation. Not just in our church. Not just in our church, not just in our country, not just in our city. This, it, it's not less than any of that. But he's arguing for more than that as fundamental to how we think of ourselves in connection around the world, which is why we do things like the short-term mission. As yeah. an example. So um, what I want to underscore, one of the reasons I wanted us to see this video together is to uh, a few things. One, to, 
great model of how you can be uh, capture urgency without anger. Uh, number two, um, you know, clear presentation of hey, the options are not be a Christian nationalist or live in the attic. Right? There is a healthy kind of Christian engagement in politics. Let me list a few of those things. It's not wrong to do A, B, C, D. Right? There is this healthy, robust sense there. Um, and yet, uh, we, uh, we need to make sure that we don't get so focused in on belonging to a single nation that we lose a broader sense of what God is doing in the whole world and lose the sight of the fact that, that Jesus is calling followers to himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Um, <clears throat> so, here's something that I want us to do. We'll, we'll explore this more fully next week. I want to introduce you. I, I, I want to urge you to do a few things as your pastor in, in light of what we're learning about Christian nationalism. I want to urge you to, to do some things um, or not do some things. But I want you to understand a framework for that. There's this beautiful word in the Greek New Testament called paraklesis. If you ever heard the Holy Spirit called a paraclete, it's really, that's the noun form. Uh, one, one noun form, this is another noun related paraklesis. What does it mean? Well, it, it, it means kind of like being a coach. No, it doesn't. Don't ever tell anybody that. They'll think your pastor is stupid. Um, <clears throat> I love this picture. You notice Kirby Smart. Do, you notice how I'm like trying to build bridges here. <laughs> Somewhere out there is a picture of Dabo Swinney kneeling beside a guy with an orange helmet, touching him. I didn't choose that one. Know your context, right? All right. Paraclesis means comfort. It's when the coach draws near to the injured player and stops talking about the game. He stops talking about how he missed the block on the previous play. And he's just showing him, I, I love you, I care for you, I'm concerned about you. We're going to let other people look at your ankle right now. I want to take care of your heart. Comfort, paraclesis, also means instruction. This guy's not angry. He's, there's some urgency <laughs> in what he's communicating, right? Look at her face. She is intent on learning whatever it is that he has to say right now in this moment. Because she's about to go turn it into action on the field. Paraclesis is this word that captures comfort, instruction. Sometimes the coach is just cheering everybody on, right? Notice Notice all the teammates in the background. What are they doing? They're following the coach's lead. The coach has become fan at this point. The coach is just exhorting, like motivating. Get in there. Do it. You're doing a great job. Go for it. 
The Holy Spirit does that. The paraklesis, comfort, instruction, motivation, exhortation. What are we going to call this one? (laughs) This this is a different kind of exhortation, right? This is not a go for it. This is a... This is more correction, like a, please don't ever do it that way again. Um, and uh, just to show Dion some love, we're going to throw that one in too. So here he's not correcting his son. Like that, that picture just makes me think that his, his, his son just made a mistake on the field. And what, is that, what does that hand on the helmet say to you? It's okay. It's all right. Go get them next time, buddy. Right? This is encouragement. Paraclesis is all of those things. It's encouragement. It's instruction. It's correction. It is rebuke. It is motivation, exhortation. It, it's, it's all of that together. And uh, so I, I want to engage some of that with us. This will be our final thought for the morning, and we'll pick up here next week. I want to urge you not to give up on confidence in Scripture. Don't give up on trusting the Scriptures as God's Word to us. We live in a time where where people are going to say, if you are like that, then you are more likely to become a Christian nationalist or some other kind of extremist. That is not true. (laughs) Don't let that discourage you. We live in a time where people are going to say, it is okay to say that you take the Bible seriously as long as you keep that belief in the attic. Don't let it actually come down onto the ground level of where you live every day. I just want to say to you, don't don't listen to that. If, If the God who is and who has given us his son... If if that God has spoken truth to us about the world he's made, then it is truth that helps us in every aspect of life. And it is not wrong to apply what he has said to us to all of life. Now, wisdom is required to do that well, right? And so... um, I don't have to stop eating shrimp because I read something about shrimp in Leviticus. Right? I've got to know context. I've got to know what did the coming of Jesus change? What did it not change? Right? So wisdom is going to be required there. And yet, we, we don't say, hey, because it's complicated, let's just give up on it. Let's not give up on it. Don't give up on confidence in Scripture. Next week, what I'd like to do is unpack that a little bit more and say, who especially needs to pay attention to that bit of paraclesis? Who is most likely to feel the pressure to give up on confidence in Scripture? And there will be a couple of other notes of that same kind of coaching next Sunday as well. All right, so now my pastoral 
paraklesis for you is uh, leave this room and go to worship. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for being with us. Thank you for teaching and instructing us. Thank you for uh, giving us peace, reminding us that you are the Lord, that you have brought us near to the Father, that nothing can separate us from that love. And um, thank you for speaking truth to us in the scriptures, uh, the very scriptures that tell us that when we are insulted, we are to respond with gentleness. That when we are misunderstood, we're to respond with greater respect than we would have shown if the person hadn't misunderstood or misrepresented us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for breathing yourself into us out of every word of Scripture. Go with us now into worship. Go with our church family into a time of Grieving the loss of one of our beloved friends, John Pierce, later this afternoon, go with us into resurrection hope. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture and Christianity. In-Town Community Church is located in Atlanta, Georgia. You can find out more information about our church on our website, intown.org. If you would like more information please contact us at askintown at intown.org.